Well, thank you, praise team. That is why we are gathered this morning is to worship the Lord. Well, I'm excited this morning to introduce to you Seth Rodebeck. For those of you who have been around Gateway for a while, he needs no introduction, but our college students, he needs no introduction. You hear the cheering section over there. For many of you that we know are new to Gateway in the last few months, I want to introduce to you Seth. Seth is one of our elders here, and one of the great strengths of Gateway that really makes Gateway stand apart from a typical Baptist church is our, our view of plurality of leadership. As a senior pastor, I'm not the CEO of the church. I serve alongside nine other brothers, and we as the pastoral leadership team, the elders of the church, oversee the church. We're joined by 13 deacons, and so here at Gateway, we've got 23 men who are responsible for this church, and it is just so cool to serve alongside these brothers. But Seth is one of our elders. For those of you who don't know him, he oversees our collegiate ministry. So our college students who are cheering for him just a second ago, he leads them in their home every week. He and Megan open up their home, and they have the college students over for our college student life group. In addition to that, he disciples a lot of these college young men. He and Megan also lead a Tuesday morning Bible study in one of the middle schools that has a lot of needs, and they're able to get into the school and to minister to those kids. And so he serves in lots of ways, as well as on the elder team, helping oversee the life of the church. He's a lawyer um, with the state Supreme Court and brings a great legal perspective and administrative oversight to the church that really strengthens Gateway. So I want you guys who are not familiar with Seth to know who he is. He's continuing into our study through Ephesians. And when we started this study of Ephesians, I gave to the whole elder team kind of our projected map of how long we'd be in Ephesians and what text we're hitting when. I told the guys in, I said, listen, if there's a text that really arrests your heart, that you are just love this text, let me know. I'd love to let you preach it. And Seth came to me probably within a week and said, I love Ephesians chapter 3, 14 to 19. I've prayed this prayer so many times, I would love to teach it. How do you say no to that, right? So I am so excited this morning as Seth continues our journey through Ephesians. I want to pray for him, and then we're going to turn it over to you, Seth. Father, we are thankful for the opportunity to continue to study your word this morning. Lord, I'm thankful for Seth. I'm thankful for his friendship. I'm thankful for the way he so faithfully shepherds the college students here at Gateway, the way he loves on the students at the school that he goes to. Lord, I'm just thankful as well for the way he just exercises such a gift of administration in the life of the church here. And Lord, I'm thankful for his ability to study and to teach your word. And Lord, I'm just excited this morning about what you're going to teach us as he brings to us your word from Ephesians chapter 3 this morning. So we ask your blessings upon him, your anointing over him as he teaches us your word, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Grady, for that introduction. It's very kind. I think it's very gracious of him to say that I bring an interesting legal perspective. I think I usually just annoy the rest of the elders with, <laughs> with that perspective, but <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah, and, and I did. I was very excited to preach Ephesians three fourteen to 19. And when I told Grady this, I thought he seemed unusually excited. And then as I was studying and I remembered this line, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And I thought, man, he's just glad he doesn't have to try and explain something that surpasses knowledge. So, but anyway, well, let's jump into this. Yeah, as Grady said, we've been going through Ephesians, uh, the book of Ephesians as a church. It's been a really wonderful experience. Um, we've, we've made it now to Ephesians chapter 4. Or, sorry, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. And as we've looked, worked through this book the past several weeks, it's been evident that the church at Ephesus was divided. Okay, Paul is writing to this church. You've got Jewish and Gentile believers from all around the world coming into one church, and these groups were in conflict. There was no unity because these two groups were focusing on their differences rather than their oneness in Jesus Christ. In Paul, in chapters 2 and 3, he lays out his teaching on why these two groups comprise one church in Jesus Christ. And Paul's teaching is that the church, made up of all people groups, is unified in the love of Jesus Christ. So we've studied Paul's theological argument for why the church is one in Jesus Christ. And today in these verses, we're going to look at Paul as he's petitioning the Father for supernatural intervention to unify the church at Ephesus in that love. 
So the main idea I want you guys to see today as we work through this scripture is that the church is to be unified in the love of Jesus Christ. Okay, the church is to be unified in the love of Jesus Christ. So if you would please stand as we read Ephesians chapter 3 verses 14 through 19 in honor of the word of God, this great gift to us. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Lord, I just pray that you would come now and that you would help us to understand this prayer, Father. And I just pray this for our church now, that today you would pour out your spirit on us, that Christ would dwell in our hearts, that we would understand your love for us, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Okay, so where we are headed today, I always like to give a roadmap of the points we're going to be making, the points we're going to be covering. We're going to be covering three points today. The first thing I want you to see is that this prayer is actually a prayer for unity. Okay, so that's the first thing we're going to be talking about. The second point that I want you to see is that Paul is praying that the church would be unified in the love of Jesus Christ. Okay, he's not just praying for unity generally. He's specifically praying for unity in the love of Jesus Christ. And third... I want us to look at what a church unified in the love of Jesus Christ looks like and to talk about what that that looks like here at Gateway Baptist Church. So on this first point, Paul is primarily praying for the unity of the diverse church at Ephesus, okay? And this is great. He said, this is one of my favorite prayers in Scripture. I have prayed this for this church and for you individually many times. As as I'm in my sixth year as an elder, and, and as I've prayed over this church, this is a prayer I come back to. A lot, And it wasn't, though, until I really dug into this and really studying, started studying this passage that I realized that this prayer is not just a general prayer for you personally to feel closer to God for your personal betterment. Okay, This prayer is not so you feel good about yourself with Jesus Christ. Instead, as we'll see today, this prayer is actually a prayer that the many individual living stones comprising the living temple of God would, by the power of the Holy Spirit, be unified in the love of Jesus Christ for the glory of God. Okay? So just keep that in mind. Um, And and, and as you'll notice as we read this passage in Ephesians 3, the word unity does not actually appear in this passage. And so that's why I want to spend a little time and, and demonstrate to you why I believe this is a prayer for that unity. And I think the key lies in the very first words of verse 14. Paul starts out his prayer, for this reason. So in order to understand why Paul is praying, we've got to understand what exactly he's referring to. And in order to answer this question, we've got to look at what precedes what Paul says here. I'm not going to spend a lot of time. Grady's done a wonderful time leading us through chapters 2 and 3 in the book of Ephesians. But just to recall, Paul explains in chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, how every believer is one in Jesus Christ. Paul recognizes that there's a hostility between Jewish and Gentile believers... This hostility stemmed from the Jewish believers' belief that the Gentile believers were unclean because the Gentiles did not practice the ceremonial laws of the Old Covenant, right? The the Israelites were not to defile themselves by interacting with unclean people. So these Jewish believers coming out of their Jewish tradition, coming out of the Old Covenant, still have this mindset that the Gentile believers are unclean because they're not following the Old Covenant, okay? Okay. 
And so the Jewish believers, as a result of this, they didn't want fellowship with the unclean believers. They did not even want to be physically near them. They certainly didn't want a Gentile in their home to share a meal or pray for one another or live out the Christian faith side by side. There was a sharp division between these two groups. And by the way, our present-day solution to what was happening at the Church of Ephesus would have been to encourage those two groups to just go ahead and form two different denominations of churches, right? Probably what we would tell them in this day and age. But Paul writes that this hostility that the Jewish believers and Gentile believers are experiencing is destroyed in the work of Jesus Christ. Now the ceremonial law is satisfied in Jesus Christ. It is in Christ alone that all things are made clean. It's not the observance of the old covenant that makes you right in the eyes of God. Relationship with God is available to all on account of the work of Jesus, not the work of the Jews. The presence of God no longer abides only in the Holy of Holies, but instead the presence of God is in every person who has put their faith in the completed work of Jesus Christ. And it's out of these living stones that Jesus, that the Lord is making his church, this living temple, that is growing. And now Jew and Gentile are one at the foot of the cross. Paul continues this theme of unity in chapter 3. In verses 2 through 13, Paul discusses that the mystery of the gospel is for the Gentiles. The Gentiles are fellow heirs and members of the same body. Both Jew and Gentile are one in Jesus Christ. And Paul makes this uh, makes clear that this oneness, this unity, is actually God's plan to reveal his manifold wisdom to the world and to the spiritual world. Okay, so that's where we have been, and that's what Paul's been teaching as he leads into this prayer. And then as further evidence that this prayer is actually for unity, if you look at chapter 4, the beginning of chapter 4, if your Bible has headings at Scripture, the beginning of chapter 4 probably has the word unity in it. If you use the ESV, mine says unity in the body of Christ, which covers chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. So here we have this prayer in chapter 3, verses 14 through 19, that comes right after Paul has been giving the theological groundwork for why Jewish and Gentile believers are one in Jesus Christ, he, he pauses to pray, and then he picks up with a practical discussion of what unity in the body of Christ looks like. So I think we can pretty confidently conclude that the heart of Paul's prayer is for the unity of the body of Christ. It's not primarily for the, indivi- not primarily for the individual but rather, Paul's prayer is that the individual living stones comprising the temple of God would be unified in the love of Jesus Christ so that God may be glorified in this world. Okay, so that's, that's point number one. That's the context in which this prayer is given. So now let's look at the second point here. Paul is praying that the church would not only be unified generally, but Paul is praying that the church would be specifically unified in the love of Jesus Christ. That is the commonly held belief that Paul is praying that the church at Ephesus would be unified in. Remember, unity itself does not always produce God-honoring results. Just because a group of people are unified, unity in and of itself does not produce a God-honoring result. Okay, Paul's prayer is not simply for unity. It's unity in the love of Jesus Christ. And and here's kind of a loose definition or, or a description of unity when it comes to a group of people. Here's something that we can all work off of this morning. As I've been thinking about unity and what that looks like, unity is when a group of people rally around a commonly held belief and act in one accord in a manner consistent with that belief. So that's kind of my working definition today. Okay, let me say that again. Unity is when a group of people rally around a commonly held belief and act in one accord in a manner consistent with that belief. 
And a couple of things I want you to note about unity, okay? As we think about this, as we're talking about this, the first thing I want you to understand about unity is that it is a morally neutral concept, okay? Unity is morally neutral. In other words, it's not in and of itself good or bad. Rather, what makes unity good or bad is the commonly held belief around which people are unified, okay? It's that common shared belief that makes unity good or bad. So... I think we, th- this is a good warning to us. We need to really be aware of what we are unified around as a church. Okay, It's not enough for us to be unified. Rather, we need to be very specific about what we are unified in. For instance, consider Nazi Germany. Right, You had an entire nation of people unified around an incredibly evil system of belief. But we wouldn't say that Nazi Germany was evil because they were unified, but it was the commonly held beliefs around which they were unified that made that an evil thing. Uh, And so we just really got to understand that, that unity itself is not good in and of itself. It's what we are unified around that makes it good or bad, okay? The second thing I want you to know about unity is that unity is powerful. It's really significant. Unity is powerful. It's why we must be discerning about what we unify around. And unity, even, even around an evil purpose, is powerful. Okay, And we see this account in Scripture. If you would, turn with me to Genesis chapter 11. We're going to spend a couple minutes here to look at the account of the Tower of Babel. This is a familiar story, but Genesis chapter 11, I'm going to read verses 1 through 4. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And and then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. The people building the Tower of Babel were unified in their desire to build a tower, one, as a testament to their own greatness, and two, so that they would not be dispersed around the world. Both of those desires were contrary to the will of God, right? Human beings were created for the glory of God, and here they are trying to make their own name. And second, God had specifically commanded that humans fill the earth, multiply, fill the earth, take dominion over the earth. And so here this group of people uh, at the Tower of Babel in the land of Shinar are saying... We want to make a great name for ourselves, not God, and we want to stay together. We don't want to separate. So here it is, an express desire to uh, expressly against God's will is their desire. So now look at verses 5 and 6. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built, and the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. So here we see the power of unity. God himself says, nothing will now be impossible for a unified group of people, even though that unity was based on something evil and directly contrary to the will of God. This is what we've got to note about the story. Unity is powerful. When a group of people are unified, even around an evil purpose, it is a powerful thing. When a group of people come together 
around a common purpose and are willing to devote all of their time, resources, energy, mental capacity, physical capacity, all of that, short of God himself opposing such unity, there is nothing that can stop that force. So a church unified is only a good thing if it is unified in Jesus Christ. It would be better that we not be unified at all than to be unified in something other than Jesus Christ. Why? Because we very well might accomplish the goal that we set out to accomplish based on the power of unity, not the power of God. So something that we really need to be careful about as we think about unity. And so this brings us to the prayer in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 19. So the members of the church were divided. They had no unity. Jewish and Gentile believers were not of one accord. They're focused on their differences, not their oneness in Jesus Christ. And Paul, having taught the church at Ephesus the theology of Christian unity, now prays for the supernatural intervention of God to bring about unity in the love of Jesus Christ. So here's the prayer, okay? And I think it's helpful as we look at this prayer that we break it into two parts, okay? Verses 14 through 17a is the request that Paul is making. And then verses 17b through 19 is the result of God answering that request, okay? So let me read for you verses 14 through 17a again. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So that's the request, all right? And let's look at that. The first thing that Paul is asking, he's asking the Father, okay? He's coming to the Father. He's pleading with the Father. Jews normally prayed standing up. So this, this, uh, this uh, note that, that Paul is saying here, I bow my knees before the Father, indicates an emotional plea with God the Father himself. And he's saying, Father, would you, in accordance with the riches of your glory, pour out the Holy Spirit? Right? That's what he's asking. He's saying, Father, send the Holy Spirit according to your riches and glory to fill us. Okay? And what's amazing here is that the riches of God's glory are infinite. There is no limit to the riches of God's glory. So essentially, Paul is asking that the Father pour out the Holy Spirit in continuous and infinite measure upon the members of the church. Paul is asking the Father that is asking the Father to send the Holy Spirit to continually fill the church. And this is consistent with Paul's command in Ephesians 5.18, where he tells the church to be filled with the Spirit. And what he says in 5.18 there, it's a continual filling. So here's Paul asking the Father to pour out the Holy Spirit, and then he asks the Holy Spirit to strengthen the members of the church with power in their inner beings so that Christ may dwell in us. Guys, this is the work of the Holy Spirit. Right? The Holy Spirit is the one that imparts to us power and strength so that we may have faith that the completed work of Jesus Christ may abide in us, so that Christ himself may dwell within us. In other words, it's by the power of the Holy Spirit that we actually live the command in Romans 6.11 to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to Jesus Christ. If you guys were here last week, that's what Dwayne, that's his whole message, that's his whole uh, testimony, his whole ministry is centered around that verse. And that's only done by the power of the Holy Spirit, strengthening us in our inner being so that Christ may dwell in us. He's the Holy Spirit is the one that does that. He's the one that imparts to us the power and faith to lay down our lives, to take up the life of Jesus Christ. 
Okay, so as the Father is continually pouring out the Holy Spirit in infinite measure, giving us faith so that Christ may dwell in our hearts, what occurs is what Paul prays in 17b through 19, where he says that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So the first thing Paul says here is that us being rooted and grounded in love. As the Father's pouring out the Spirit, the Spirit is filling us, Christ is dwelling in our hearts, we will be rooted and grounded in love. And what I want you guys to think here is a massive oak tree, okay? As you are rooted and grounded in love, the roots of a tree go out along the ground, they dig down into the soil for two reasons. One, so that that tree doesn't topple over whenever a storm comes. Same is true for you. As your roots go down in the love of Jesus Christ, you will be able to weather whatever storm, whatever suffering, whatever trial comes your way. Not only will you be able to weather it, you will be able to rejoice in it because you know you are loved by God. You know that nothing can separate you from that love. That's the being rooted and grounded in Jesus Christ. But also those roots draw nutrients into the tree, right? So if you, if you're, with the roots of your heart, the roots of your life, dug deep into the love, the soil of the love of God, you will be drawing those nutrients into your life, growing your faith, growing your spirituality as you go. And that's a, that's a wonderful image. So as, as the Father's doing this, pouring out the Spirit, Jesus in our hearts, we're rooted and grounded in love. And then it's from this position in Jesus Christ that we then will have the strength to comprehend with all the saints the endless love of Jesus Christ. And notice what Paul's praise here. He says that we may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. You cannot experience love alone. In order for love to exist, it needs an object of its, of its affection, right? We need one another to truly understand the massiveness of the love of Jesus Christ. And this is because true love, pure love, agape love is nothing if not sacrificial. That was God's love for us, and that's the love we need to have for one another. Okay? And it was going to cost the members of the church at Ephesus to love one another. The Jewish believers and the Gentile believers were going to have to swallow their pride, seek forgiveness from one another, bear with one another in sin. This kind of love is only experienced with God and in community with imperfect people. And so that's where I want to challenge you with this Uh, In this moment, personal time with God is vital, but it is not sufficient. Okay? You can be alone in your house, reading your Bible all day, every day, with praise music on, praying, and you will not experience all that God has for you. The Christian faith is one of community. We are all living stones in this one temple that God is building together and growing for His glory. And if you don't open your life up and get in community and open your heart up and share your trials and your sins and your struggles and your needs and what God's showing you, if you don't do that, you will not experience the fullness and the vastness and the limitlessness of God's incredible love for us. We work hard at Gateway and we've been working hard. The whole church has been working hard to to create life groups and small groups and Sunday schools for you to be able to have a place to plug in and experience community. It's not 
just to give you something else to do. It is vital for your spiritual life that you be in community and that you be surrounded by a group of people that love you and that you be serving those people and that you be served by those people. That is vital to your, to your faith and to you growing in your faith and you uh, continuing to know God. So just keep that in mind. That, that, that we only will know the, the height, the breadth and length and height and depth of God's love together as one people. And then finally, Paul says here, as we're rooted and grounded in love, experiencing love and community, we will come to know the love of Jesus Christ that surpasses knowledge. And this is something that, um, I mean, how do you explain that? How do you explain a love that surpasses knowledge? And thankfully, I think Paul does this uh, better than any of us ever could in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And I'm just going to read that for you. Just flip a page back. This is the love of Jesus Christ that surpasses knowledge. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him that we should walk in them. This is the love of Jesus Christ. This is the love that surpasses knowledge. And I don't think Paul characterizes the love of Jesus Christ as surpassing knowledge because we can't understand what Jesus did. We have a whole book, a whole Holy Spirit-inspired text, the Bible, that very clearly explains what God has done and the actions God has taken and the manner in which he saved us. I think this love surpasses our knowledge is because we just simply can't understand why God would do this, right? I mean, we can't offer God anything. Why would Jesus, the creator of the universe, step out of heaven, take on human flesh, contend with the vileness of man by living in this fallen, broken world, subject himself to a brutal death on a cross for sins he did not commit? Why would he suffer as he did? Jesus' love for us is undeserved. It's unmerited. It's unconditional. He came to us. He met us in our sin. He didn't look at us in disgust and turn away in repulsion, but he took compassion on us. He was rejected by the Father so that we would be accepted by the Father. He loved. He came near to us, right? Not because he needed anything from us, simply because he loves us. We have nothing to offer him, yet he gives us the riches of heaven. This love is, is incomprehensible. Okay, This love, we cannot grasp as to why he would give us this. But the thing that we know, the thing that I know today, is that Jesus Christ loves me. And that Jesus Christ loves each one of you. There is no doubt when you read this scripture that Jesus Christ's love is real and that it is for you. 
And it's this love that Paul prays the church at Ephesus would be unified in. There's nothing that can stop the church when it is unified in the love of Jesus Christ. There's nothing that can stop the church when each one of its members are continually being filled with the infinite power of the Holy Spirit so that Jesus Christ is dwelling in our hearts. There is nothing that can stop the church when it is rooted and grounded in the love of Jesus Christ and when it sees the vastness of God's love. That's what Paul's praying for us, okay? And what I want us to see now is that a church unified in the love of Jesus Christ loves like Jesus Christ, okay? When we as Gateway Baptist Church, when we become unified in the love of Jesus Christ, we will in turn love each other and this world in the same manner in which Jesus Christ has loved us. And earlier I warned that we've got to be careful about what we as a church are unified in. We must ensure that we're unified in the love of Jesus Christ. And so the question we've got to ask was, well, how do we know that? And that's one of the things, one of the questions that we've got for you to discuss in your small groups this week is what is Gateway Baptist Church unified in? And that's something, here's some things that are some markers. And and this is just scripture. I'm not going to comment on a lot of these scriptures. I'm just going to read some scriptures. I want you guys to listen to them. Um, Write down these references if you want to go back and look at them and think about these. But these scriptures that I'm going to read to you are either scripture, is either letters written to a church instructing them how they are to love one another, or it's an account of how a church is actually operating. Okay? So here's some scriptures, and just follow, they'll be up on the screen. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 8a. So love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. And, And one comment about this, this scripture is often read at weddings as it should be, but the, the letter of 1 Corinthians was not written to a young couple that Paul is giving premarital counseling to, right? This was written to a church. This love is not reserved for the marriage relationship. This love is what each of us should have for one another, okay? And I will remind the other elders that it's not irritable or resentful when the lawyer brings up something at the elders' meeting. <laughs> but All right, look at Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to 37. And this is a description of a church that's unified in the love of Jesus Christ, the loving like Jesus Christ. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed each as he had at need, as any had need. Look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not not count equality with God 
a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And finally, listen to Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so, also, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So I've read these passages for you this morning because I want you to see a church that is unified in the love of Jesus Christ, that is loving like Jesus Christ. Right? It's no mystery how to reach this dark and fallen world with the gospel. It's incredibly difficult and, in fact, impossible on our own strength. But it's not a mystery. John 13, 34 to 35 says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So this is the prayer that Paul is praying. He's praying that we would be unified in the love of Jesus Christ, that we, as, as each individual making up this living temple, that the Holy Spirit would be continually poured into us, that the Holy Spirit would empower us, would strengthen us with power in our inner being, that, that Jesus Christ himself would dwell within us. And as we are in that place, we will, we will then come to understand the love of Jesus Christ. Um, and, and so a couple questions then. Do these dis- passages that we've just read here describe the church of Montgomery, Alabama? The church at large, not just Gateway, the church of Montgomery, Alabama is the church of Montgomery unified in the love of Jesus Christ. Are there so many churches in Montgomery because of unity in the love of Jesus Christ? Or are there so many churches in Montgomery because divisions arose and were never conquered by unity in the love of Jesus Christ? Is the fact that there are white churches and black churches in Montgomery, Alabama, the result of unity in the love of Jesus Christ? These are some rhetorical questions with, with probably pretty obvious answers. But, but the two, two questions I want you guys to think about this week in your small groups and all that is, uh, is first, what is the unifying belief at Gateway Baptist Church? And second, what are we doing to unify the church of Montgomery in the love of Jesus Christ? Right? How are we working to do that? And there is work going on. How are we working to do that, and how can we continue to support that effort? And one of the things that I'm excited about was our partnership with Dwayne. He was here last week. And Dwayne is getting out in the city of Montgomery to a lot of places that, that we just don't even think about a lot of times. And so for us to come along beside Dwayne and support him and love him and encourage him and, and labor with him, I'm really excited about that opportunity. So in conclusion, hopefully you've seen from this that the church must be unified in the love of Jesus Christ in order to fulfill its purpose. We are the bride of Christ. 
as we are rooted and grounded in the love of Jesus Christ, we can, in turn, love one another and the world with this love. If the praise team would come and and we can go ahead and wrap this up. And for those of you who know Jesus Christ as your Savior, okay, when was the last time you experienced the love of Jesus Christ? Okay, this is a continual thing, as we see from Paul's prayer here. This is a continual thing, a continual pouring out of the Holy Spirit, a continual filling of you, and the work of the Holy Spirit is to direct you to the completed work of Jesus Christ. Okay, if you want your elders to pray over you for that today, please come up here. We would love to pray with you. This is an awesome prayer. This is a fun prayer that we get to pray for each one of you. We're happy to do that. And for those of you who have never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, today is the day. It's not any accident that you are here today hearing this sermon or if you're listening to it online. It's no accident. This is the love of Jesus Christ. And if anything in you today leaps at the thought of being made right with God, Jesus Christ is the only way. He's the only way. And he loves you. He's given his life for you. And he is welcoming you you into his family. Experience that love today. If you would stand and sing with us.